Welcome to Significance Breed Success. My name is Daniel Pewter, and today I'm here with a guy who's uh, been a mentor of mine. He gives me a couple hours a year of his time, and if I need a text or an email or a call, they'll jump on. Mark Leader is the co-founder of Sun Capital. He's a high-level exec. They buy companies, they turn them around, they um, save hundreds of thousands of jobs when companies aren't doing well. And so I look at you as somebody who is um, more significant, how you have treated me from the first time I met you in New York, uh, in your, what, your 50th floor, you know, suite up there, to um, inviting me to your, to your house, to inter introducing me to your friends, to um, taking me to dinners and, and just, you know, being a, an amazing role model, and then how you treat people in your life. And so I look at you as somebody that's super successful and has billions of dollars of companies that you've turned around to really making that impact. Why do you do it all? What's, what's, what's the purpose behind it all? Well, uh, the purpose of being so nice to everyone? Yeah. Uh, I think it's, well, I guess the better question is why would anyone not be nice to everyone? Uh, it's, it's no more effort to treat people with, you know, kindness and compassion, uh, than it does to, to be a jerk, so why would you ever do the latter? Yeah, and you get farther ahead? Uh, absolutely, people like to work with and work for people that they actually like and respect. And yes, you can be a jerk and still have people work for you, but they're not gonna be as engaged, they're not gonna be as motivated, they're not gonna be as productive, and you're not gonna get the best people if you don't have a good heart. Yeah, I agree. How do you find good people around you to build your teams, because I think that the two biggest challenges in life are team building, um, whether you're personal or professional, right? Or, you know, commit. And you work, you know, you put a lot of hours into this. How do you find those people? Well, first of all, I've got to correct you. The, the hardest job is raising children. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you don't have kids yet, you, 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 don't, you don't know that. Okay. Uh, they, they unfortunately do not come with uh, instruction manuals. Uh, oh. But, uh, yes, finding uh, great people is, uh, a challenge, but uh, success breeds success, and uh, I think when you when you're a, a generally good person, uh, the word spreads. You know, there's the old saying: it takes you a lifetime to build a reputation, and a few minutes or a few seconds to ruin it. So never doing that. Always keeping a great reputation. Uh, good good people will find you. Uh, I think you've seen in our conference room, and it's right behind you. We keep our our mission and our culture and our imperative, operating imperatives at all our conference rooms. And if you look at our culture, integrity and fairness always. Uh, incredibly important and valuable. Uh, no ego or arrogance. Honor and respect everyone. Those are all things that we really live by here. And it's interesting because as people have gotten to know us, whether it's a new management team or a lender or a potential investor in our funds, they tell us that they meet all different people from our firm at different levels, different parts of the firm, different geographic offices, and they, they look up at the, at the culture, and they're amazed at how every person they meet, meet you know, matches that culture. And again, it's because you know, we attract people that have got the same values that we have. Do you run them through, I mean, your, your team, how you're able to, how fast you're able to buy companies and look at um, you know, brand, like when we talked last time, I think you were, you know, you had a couple points on how you build companies and, and how you invest in them and then how you turn them around. When you see a company turned around, 
and thousands or you know tens. To, I mean, probably the minimum company is what like thousand, two thousand employees. Uh, no, we have some that are smaller. Some some businesses, for example, chemical companies. You walk through a chemical plant; it could be on acres, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet of space. All these pipes and, and vats, and there's no one there. There's like three people in a control room. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. So you've got uh, businesses like that that don't have that many people, but are you know pretty large in terms of revenues, profits. And then you take a restaurant. Uh, we could own a chain of of a hundred restaurants that employ two thousand people. Because as you know, when you go to a restaurant, you've got you know the hostess and the servers and the and the busboys and the kitchen staff and the managers. So some businesses are very people intensive; others are just the opposite. Yeah. So when you turn something around with you know, five hundred five employees to ten thousand employees, how do you how does that make you feel that you saved jobs if that company, let's say, was going out of business or they they were going to close them down? Uh, it's a great feeling. Uh, it's it's you know one taking a, a business that had been successful at one point, but in hard times, and bringing them back to their greatest success. Uh, it's a great feeling of accomplishment, obviously saving the jobs feels great, but we're also saving you know, landlords if it's a retail or restaurant company, because rather than having all these stores closed where they would have vacancies, they continue to collect rent, which they then use to feed their you know, economic uh, cycle. Uh, saving suppliers money. I mean, just it, it helps in so many ways. Uh, and then even just making a good profit for our investors. Our investors are university endowments. And before we get started with this, you talked about uh, what Jeff Bezos is doing about uh, engineering programs uh, available for free. Yeah. Uh, so some of the profits we make for our investors uh, is for university endowments to provide scholarships. It's to pension funds. Uh, it's to uh, foundations that are funding healthcare research and, and uh, other uh, services, other charities throughout the world. So every part of our ecosystem benefits when we succeed. So a lot of, like, not everybody understands, let's say, your world, right? So you guys open up a fund of what, about five billion or so per round? Uh, our current fund is 2.2 billion. Okay. So you raised 2.2 billion with foundations or nonprofits or universities or investors, per personal, private, you know, how family offices, and then from there you take the 2.2 billion, you buy X amount of companies, right, and invest it. Correct. And then from there you turn around those companies. Some you'll sell and some you'll keep. Uh, no, we we don't keep any. So our basic business model is every. Two to four years, we raise a fund to two and a half billion, and we invest it in probably 25 companies. Uh, and some of the companies we buy, as you described, are, are real distressed, and we're like a, 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 a ER at the hospital trying to save a patient, stabilize the patient, and then help it get healthy again, ultimately selling it. And then other businesses we buy are actually pretty healthy but maybe not hitting on all cylinders, and with our experience and our background and our team, we can help them in the few areas where they're not uh, as strong as, as they should be. Mm -hmm. And we also help them grow and, and improve profitability, and then we sell them as well. We, we don't keep anything in the long term. Okay. But we also have bought and, and turned around or, or improved uh, a lot of companies whose brands or names you won't know, but you touch their products every day. Uh, so chemical companies and 
building product companies. We own a great company right now uh, called True Light, and they make uh, uh, the, the glass and the aluminum around the glass in buildings, hospitals, retail stores. So you, you probably walk by dozens of our products every day and don't realize it. How many companies will you hold at one time? So we currently own 38 companies throughout the world. Wow. Uh, and that's about our equilibrium level. So between 35 and 40 companies is our average. Wow. So, and every two to four years then, you'll turn X amount of them around? We, it's like inventory uh, in, a, in a retail store. Every year we're selling some of our older businesses and buying new ones to replace that. Do executives of those companies or employees, like, I mean, you must hear from them every once in a while saying thank you very much for, you know, rebuilding our company, saving our jobs, that sort of thing? Uh, yes. Uh, we, we maintain uh, open communication with former management teams and employees, and it's always great hearing from them and, and seeing and hearing that they're still doing well. Yeah. Um, I think it was uh, about two years ago you were telling me that you got into the education space a little bit because you saw you, know, you wanted to support kids' growth. Right. So, so what happened is uh, we, we, we have a foundation, the Sun Capital Partners Foundation, and we started supporting uh, some charter schools in, uh, in, in uh, New York, uh, the Bronx. And their academic achievements were extraordinarily uh, were extraordinary, extraordinary. So just, I mean, the, the uh, test scores of the kids were off the charts, and as a result, Roger and I decided let, let's start our own down here in our local community. So we opened up uh, with some other people locally, University Prep Academy, uh, and uh, we are in our I think fourth year, and uh, it's doing well. The kids are really uh, benefiting from it, uh, as is the local community and it's to help underprivileged children uh, get a great education. I love that. How, where are your schools located now? Uh, we have one and it's in West Palm Beach. It's amazing. Yeah, so about 30 minutes from here. That's awesome. I want to go by this. I know I talked to your principal a couple of years ago. You're welcome. I think they'd love to have you come over. So what grades are they? Uh, so we started with uh, K through three and we've added uh, each year uh, additional years. Now it's K through uh, five or six. Nice. So will you go K through 12th or stop it? Uh, we will eventually go through K through 12. That's amazing. So how did you, like why education? Why, why invest? Because I look at it as our, it's our kids, it's our future, right? Like they're going to be pushing us in wheelchairs. Well, hopefully not really. But, but it's really our future on how that, you know, your kids, you know, will be hiring those kids eventually. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of, areas where uh, I get back. I just made a, a, two big contributions to my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania. One was a donation to the Institute of Contemporary Art, uh, because I do think the arts are important as well. Uh, and another to this initiative called the Behavioral Change for Good Initiative. Uh, these two incredible, uh, brilliant professors Angela Duckworth and, and Katie Milkman uh, have been doing research and I just funded uh, a major expansion of their research because for the most part people know what to do to have a happy productive life. You know, eat healthy, exercise, do your homework and get good grades in school, 
uh, save for your retirement, and although everyone knows knows what they should do to have a great life, they just they don't do it. Uh, they'll 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 so uh, they, uh, they they did a test where uh, they took a number of people that uh, knew they should go to the gym but just didn't, and they made a deal with these people that tell me your favorite TV show, but we've got to make a deal, you will only watch it at the gym. So they basically bundled something that these people didn't want to really do, but they knew it was good for them, with something that they really liked to do, that really provided no real benefit to them other than the enjoyment. And by bundling them, they got much greater continuity of, of gym visits by these people. So they're, they're trying to learn different tools like that that they can then uh, communicate and broadly apply uh, so more people can uh, change their life for the, for the better. And it's interesting because we do something very similar at Sun Capital. When, when you buy a broken company, uh, a distressed business, typically the culture is toxic. People are pointing fingers, why did things go wrong? Uh, you don't have that great culture that we have and that we fostered over many years. So one of the things we need to do is we need to fix the culture. And what they're doing at this uh, Behavioral Change for Good initiative on, a, on an individual level is what we do at, the, at a corporate level uh, by trying to get uh, these companies that were broken to have the right culture. And it's by identifying what are the common goals and objectives and values that they want to stand for and communicating that throughout the organization and building a team of people that, that uh, have those values. Have you seen that to be hard at some points? Uh, it is hard, but uh, we've found some consulting firms that have developed tools for measuring uh, culture. And uh, if you can measure something, you can usually uh, improve it. And if you can't measure it, it's very hard to improve anything. So uh, we, there are some tools that we use. Awesome. How, like, how long ago did you start Sun Capital? And um, how, how big did you start in the beginning? So uh, we started Sun Capital in 1995. And uh, I have a 50-50 business partner, Roger Krauss. Uh, we were at an investment banking firm in New York, and we wanted to get into private equity. And uh, we thought doing so in the southeast United States would be less competitive. So we moved down to South Florida. We called ourselves Sun Capital because of the focus on the southeast United States. And we spent all of 1995 working hard and got absolutely nothing done. Because we didn't have a track record, we didn't have committed capital the way we do today. So any prospective seller would say, I've got offers from other buyers that actually have money and a track record, why would I accept your offer? And we didn't really have a good answer for that. So the next year, 1996, we started looking at the deals that no one else wanted to buy. The broken companies, the turnarounds, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago. And in those cases where the seller had no other choice, they were happy to work with us. And we got our first deal done December 30th of 1996. Uh, and we were like the proverbial dog chasing the bus. It was just Roger and me, and we bought this company, and the management was weak, and they weren't doing well. We looked at each other and said, well, what do we do now? <laughs> so we, uh, <laughs> we rolled up our sleeves, uh, made a lot of mistakes, but uh, learned from them, had some beginner's luck, and got that business stabilized. And they did, did two more at the, towards the end of 97. And we got those kind of stabilized and moving in the right direction in 98. And then we were off to the races. 
So we start out very slowly. No deals in our first year, one deal at the very end of our second year, uh, and we uh, just took off at, at that point. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people see a company like an Amazon, and they think it's like an overnight success. But Jeff Bezos you know, worked out of his garage for, for years before they hit an inflection point and really started to take off. And I think that's true with, with most, most businesses. I look at a lot of your work ethic that I've seen too, like I haven't seen as much as the professional side, but I see a lot of the, you know, at events or dinners or, you know, your house in, you know, in the summer in the Hamptons. You build a lot of relationships and have a lot of people that maybe do business with or that you, you know, could do business with. You have them come out, I think. And then you have friends too, obviously, but how do you network? I think that's a huge thing that a lot of people, like when I go to high schools or colleges or, you know, when I was an adjunct at Nova or, you know, I ask kids, why are you here? And they're like, I am here to get a degree. And I'm like, what is a piece of paper going to give you? And they're like, nothing. I'm like, awesome. So you have to go get it, right? Like, it'll give you something to, like, talk about, but it won't actually give you a job. Like, you have to go earn that job. So it's interesting, how do you network? Because I think a lot of people are missing the networking um, side of, you know, the school, the college, you know, you know growing up. Sure. Uh, first of all, I completely agree with you. Uh, the more people you know, and whether it be a, a remote contact or a close friend, you know, the, the richer your life, but also the better chance you have of being successful. Because you never know when someone's going to bring you an idea or make a connection. Uh, and it's not that hard. I mean, I'm, I'm in a good position, uh, given where I'm in business. It's easy for me to get people who want to spend time. Uh, because they're hoping that they might have an opportunity that, that I help them create. But really, anyone can. I think it's developing uh, a, a wide range of, interest, of, of interests, uh, you know, and it's getting out. Uh, I'm actually a bit of an introvert at heart, uh, and I have to work pretty hard to, to get out there, but I really love people and getting to know them. So uh, I was able to kind of overcome my shyness, but Anyone can go out, whether you know, to, to, to whether it's a church or a temple, or you know, local library or Starbucks or sporting events or you know, joining clubs or cooking classes. I mean, there's just so many different ways to start meeting different people. And if you get out of where you've been spending all your time, so if, if you're an avid golfer, you got to do things other than golf because you're going to meet the same people playing golf week in and week out. Uh, so get to a baseball game with some friends, or, or there's just so many ways to meet people. So I look at, like I was at a lunch today with, with one of your friends right. and one of our mutual friends, Stacey Musselman, and it's awesome because I, so originally guys, I, my second dad met you, Harlan Giddon, I don't know where, and LA, I think oh, it was. Yeah. And then I said, hey, he, he talked about you, and, and I, I said, you know, I want to meet Mark. I'm going to be in New York in a couple weeks. And he goes, yeah, no problem. So I think I emailed you and I'm like, hey, Mark, I just want like 15 minutes of your time. Can I come by and say hi? And so I showed up. I think you gave me an hour, which I was like, what's going on here? This is, you know, like Les Brown just gave me three hours. I was like, what is Les Brown giving me three hours, right? So it was like so much because of how many people want your time. And so I was saying to myself, and you said, hey, I, go, I just want to get to know you and learn and grow. I remember it very clearly, and you said, why don't you come out to the Hamptons? I got 
you know, people coming out, coming to people or something like that. And right. I met Stacy there, and now she's one of my black belt trainers. You know, she's an amazing human, um, and I met a lot of people. But it's interesting because I just shot an email, and and I've shot a lot of emails to people, and not everybody responds right away. But sure, keep on it. In the beginning, when you were raising capital and trying to get these deals done, how many? Because people look at you and they're like, "Oh, Mark Leader, he's this, you know, this guy that runs a massive company." How many emails or deals or people did you have to ask to be able to get your first deal done? Uh, an enormous number of, of deals and people. And in fact, uh, when we started, as I mentioned, we didn't have a committed fund, so we would lock up a deal and then we'd go out and raise the money afterwards. So we did that for about five years. And then finally, towards the end of 2000, we decided it was time to raise a committed fund. We bought uh, 11 companies by then. They were, for the most part, doing well. And we thought, we're now well positioned to, to raise a fund. So we, uh, we, we sent out uh, information to investors that we'd researched or been introduced to by, by friends in the industry. And I remember Roger and I calling many of them in uh, early December after sending the information out a few weeks earlier. And uh, we would say, we, uh, we, we sent you some information on our fund, what do you think? And they all said the same thing. Uh, I think it's in the pile on my desk with a lot of other memos. I'll get to it when I get to it. <laughs> uh, and we, we finally got one investor, uh, several actually, to sit down with us between Christmas and New Year's. And here we were trekking up from South Florida at the end of December. It was cold, gray, snowy, freezing in, in, in the Northeast. Uh, we, we sit down with one investor in a beautiful conference room on a, on, on a, on a tall building on Wall Street. And uh, I start the meeting by saying, really appreciate you guys taking the meeting and having an interest in, in our fund. And uh, the, the VP from this, uh, this investor says, we're, we're not necessarily interested. Uh, we're a fund of funds. We, we meet with everyone. <laughs> but eventually we got them as an investor, and they're an investor to this day. And uh, we got others as well, and uh, we're able to raise that fund. And as I said, we're off to the races with that. When he said that, because I've been in front of a lot of people too, when he said that, like, did your gut just drop and you're like, oh no, this is horrible. Yeah, a little bit, but uh, I've been around long enough to know that uh, sometimes you got to uh, just persist and uh, just like you did with me and or with others, with me, I was an easy one. But uh, you eventually get through. So why did you take the email? Why did you give me? Why did you give me an hour? Well, I took the meeting because uh, we had a friend in common. So if you were a total stranger, I might not have. I mean, it really depended on who you were, what you were doing, and why you wanted to meet. Uh, I wish I could meet everyone who wants, but I just don't have the time. Uh, so we had someone in common, and once we were together, you were kind of an interesting person, and. Uh, I, I had the time that day, so I was happy to get to know you better. Nice. So you guys think about like I think a big thing is. is I love how you were fishing for that compliment there, though. No, no, no. <laughs> it, 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 you know, I like it, and I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I find that a lot of people um, they don't know how to link the dots a lot of times. So I email people that I don't even know, like it's out of the blue, and I work to present something that syncs with them. So if they're in education. I talk about the schools. If they're in corporate, we talk about emotional intelligence. If they're, you know, if they're athletes from like that, I look at how I can connect the dots. But a lot of time, people don't think about the other person; they're just thinking about themselves. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think 
having it uh, be somewhat relevant to the person you want to meet, uh, being reasonably concise. You know, if you send me a one-page uh, introductory letter on why you want to meet, I can already tell the meeting's going to take forever, and I don't have that time. So, you know, you, you sent a thoughtful, concise email, yes, for 15 minutes. Uh, so I was happy to do it. And I've been happy to get to know you since then. Hopefully I've added a little bit of value to your life and your development, and I hope to continue to. So I think the two biggest parts that I've seen, like the value out of getting to know you, is number one is, is seeing how you uh, build relationships is key for me because of where I want to go and what I want to accomplish in my life. Um, that's been a huge blessing. I think the other part is, is last time we met, we talked about the future of technology and where things are going. And I think that networking is a huge thing, but I also think that most people, definitely in college and in high school, they think of what is today and what they want to do in the future, but they don't really understand how the world is shifting so fast. How do you look at companies, not just to buy it today for the company today, but where the market's going to go in the future? Uh, it's, it's a challenge because the world is changing at a far faster pace today than it uh, ever has before. Uh, you know, there, there's a, uh, an adage in uh, China. Uh, the uh, big fish used to swallow the small fish. Now the fast fish swallows the slow fish. So it's, it's actually pretty thoughtful. And uh, you really got to think through any investment or any business opportunity or any career, how technology is going to affect it. So I look at, for instance, like when cars go self-driving. Mm -hmm. Uber drivers, taxi cab drivers go away. But people, people think about that. And truck drivers. And truck drivers. Probably, probably as well, which is I, I, I read the number one employer of people in this country are truck drivers. It may not be true, but that's what I read. So let's take it as a major employer, whether it's the biggest or not. Uh, with self-driving trucks, all those people will no longer have jobs. And what else are they trained to do necessarily? I mean, they could get trained, and some of them probably have other skills, but a lot of them don't. Yeah. And then I see a self-driving car could probably go to like, like a Tesla, let's say, can drive up to uh, a refill station, an energy refill, and probably drive over something and self-refill themselves. Oh, absolutely. And then there won't be as much traffic or hardly any because of the positioning of the auto driving systems will merge people and make mm -hmm. room. So there'll be less accidents. So then- There'll be no accidents. Or no, right? Depending on conditions of roads and yeah. I thought about this before and I'm like, that's interesting. And then I see, so the insurance industry goes away because we don't need insurance people. Right. And then- well, the auto insurance. Auto insurance, correct. Yeah, yeah, auto insurance. And then I look at repairs, because self-driving cars are going to repair, auto, like robotically self, you know, self-driving well, cars. Electric cars have 20 moving parts. Uh, internal combustion engines have 2,000. So electric cars rarely break down. Their maintenance is so low. So you're right, repair shops are going to be gone. Uh, gas stations, all that real estate becomes available for other purposes. Uh, there's one Stanford University professor who predicts $30 oil prices. Uh, at that point, most Gulf nations uh, can't afford to, to pump it. Uh, so what happens to the finance of Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, Russia? Uh, you know, again, not, not I haven't studied it, so not my uh, 
prediction, but a pretty uh, well-known and respected uh, professor at Stanford. And then I think you might have told me, I might have read it somewhere, we use our cars 4% of the time. Right. So if we use our cars 4% of the time and we don't all own a car anymore because we don't need to, because it's not cost effective and we're going to have an Uber concept picking us up or a Tesla concept picking us up, then only 4% of cars are made, which means that only 4% of parts are made, which means that all those people don't have jobs anymore. We don't need all those auto, uh, auto companies but this is all those auto parts. This is in multiple markets, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's conceptually all over the park, I mean, all, all over the place. So I look at people like you that are saving the companies and look at the future market on how do we build other companies in. Well, right? new, new industries are, are evolving. Uh, you know, app writers, uh, app writers, uh, all those apps you find on Apple or, 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 or Google, uh, look at all the jobs Amazon is creating while they're putting some businesses out of business. They're building all these warehouses, now they're building stores, so they're also hiring people. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting times, not clear how things are gonna pan out. Yeah. I think the key is just staying nimble and being the, the proverbial fast fish, not the slow fish. Yeah, I agree. So with um, you know how you live your life and, and, and how you travel and how you build your family, what's what was like a challenge when you were a kid, for instance? Like, what was something that was hard that you had to, because I think a lot of people look at you now and they're like, or they look at me, right? And they're like, oh, pro fighter, you're, you know, you weren't bullied as a kid. You, they might say, you've never had a problem in your life kind of thing. You know, was there any like big challenges you had growing up? Well, a uh, couple that come to mind. Uh, one, I skipped a grade growing up. So I was the youngest in my class. Uh, and I may have been academically ready, but socially, and from an athletics point of view, I wasn't. So if you're a 15-year-old boy, and you're trying to compete with 16-year-old boys, playing baseball, football, whatever, basketball, that one year makes a huge difference. So you pick last for the team, which is not good for your self-esteem. Uh, you know. And then you're trying to date girls in your class who are also 16, who, who really aren't even interested in the six-year-olds in their class. They want the 17 and 18-year-old juniors and seniors. So I didn't have my first girlfriend until my senior year of high school. Uh, so that was one whole set of issues. Uh, and I don't know why my parents had me skip, because I had a whole lifetime to, to you know, pursue a career. So getting there a year sooner, I don't think, really helped. Uh, it really hurt. The other is, my father always wanted me to be a, a doctor. And I would always say to him growing up, no, no, I have no interest in medicine. I really love, you know, Wall Street and reading about it and the Wall Street Journal and mergers and acquisitions. I didn't really know what I was talking about, but it seemed intriguing and interesting to me. So uh, when I got to uh, Wharton uh, and I told him I was going to go, and he realized I was not going to be a doctor, he said, okay, you can pay for it yourself. Uh, so I had to scramble and get student loans and all the money I'd saved up. Uh, from doing uh, high school jobs, I had to use to pay for tuition, so uh, that was a bit of a challenge. But I got there, and graduated, and I got my piece of paper, uh, and uh, took off from there. You know, I look at, um, I talk to a lot of athletes when I'm in schools around the country, and I go, you know, you guys might be the cool kids, but you're going to work for the smart kid. And they look at me, I go, I want to be the nerd or the geek, the, the, the smart one, 
because in high school, I studied hard, and they labeled me as learning disabled and special ed and all this stuff. So I was like in the other classes. I wasn't in your class. I was in the other classes, right? right? They kept me back. I failed eighth grade. Like they pushed me on, even though I failed twice. I literally was getting kicked out of one school because I had my grades, and I, you know, just very challenging school. So it's kind of the opposite. Um, but I find that a lot of people don't understand. Like they want to be cool, younger, the, the 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 peer pressure side of it. But they don't understand the relationship building. And I think you and I have both really figured out how to build those authentic relationships, how to spend time with people that we care about. If you were to go back, would you do anything differently? Uh, I agree with what you said. And there's a t-shirt I once saw which said, be nice to a nerd, one day you'll be working for one. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I treated people pretty well in high school. I was probably more the one being picked on because I was the youngest. Uh, only thing I would change if I'd been asked was not to skip the grade. Mm. Okay. So last topic I want to talk about is emotional intelligence. And I find that everything the schools are based around today is learning information, take a test. Learning information, take a test. Which conceptually is cool, but we don't necessarily create good humans. I think that... Uh, I saw a stat once, and I read it, I don't know if it's true, <laughs> but it's uh, an average parent spends two minutes of undivided attention with their kid per day. So two minutes is really, really bad. Um, if you had a mentor, I had a mentor that only gave us two minutes, that would be really bad. Um, so what's your thought, and how did you first maybe spend time um, building your emotional intelligence on, you know, when, when, when people get angry, uh, I'll give you for instance. So I ask people all the time, have you ever gotten angry? And they say yes. I said, did the person make you angry or did you let yourself? And so many people say they made me. And so it's kind of like a victim blame game. It's kind of like what you guys do when you buy a new company, right? It's like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Instead of taking accountability, like, I'll take accountability for everything I do now. So how did you figure out your emotional intelligence? And how did maybe, you said your kids, it was challenging to raise kids. How did your kids come into play maybe with your growing to the next level? Let me... Uh answer something similar to what you're asking, but a little different, because I think it's interesting. Uh, what I found in business is you should not have emotion. Uh, I think you make the best decisions when you keep fear, greed, and anger out of your business decisions. So, you know, I grew up with a normal level of emotions, but as I saw in business, the best formula for success was to keep them out of your life. Uh, I suppressed them. And that really helped me in business, but it didn't help me connect as much socially. So what I've had to work on the last, uh, really, eight years since I got divorced, uh, and as I had to go from an introvert who was happy with my wife and kids and my work and nothing else, to having a, a broader, more diverse life and a social life, is, is to learn how to connect with people uh, and bring emotion back in to my social life while still keeping it suppressed from my business life. So I think it's a value, right? Because you want to bring emotion into personal so you can connect with people. Yes. But being rational, not emotional in business, I think is more uh, people get angry in business a lot because they don't know how to value an outcome or like a purpose. And I think it makes them less effective mm -hmm. and it causes them to make some bad decisions. And then to also to go back to one of the persons we spoke about, to be that jerk in the office no one wants to work for or work with or partner with because they yell and they get angry and they're, uh, and they're uh, uh, what word am I looking at? Irresponsible, but irrational. 
Yeah, yeah. So I find that, I talk about this all the time, we're told as boys, like when we're younger, usually like society tells us, maybe not our parents, suck it up, be tough, don't cry. And so we wonder why a lot of times we are, like we're ingrained with this thought pattern and then we wonder why we're, at least I did, you know, why I'm, and why so many kids I see are so disconnected to other humans because we're never taught how to be connected. Right. Uh, I think that's a fair observation. So to, to learn and grow, because I know you, I think you went to a Tony Robbins once, but I think he was your friend, he just invited you, right? But have, have you gone to these trainings? Do you have coaches? Like, how have you expanded on that? Uh, actually, it's all been self-reflection. Okay. Uh, so uh, I did go to one of Tony's conferences, and he's phenomenal, and you're right, I was invited uh, by him. Uh, and uh, I was curious, so I wanted to see what he did. And everything he taught, I'd already kind of developed myself. So it was very rewarding to see that what he'd kind of figured out over his many years of, of working with people, I figured out for myself. Uh, and uh, I, I would definitely encourage people to look at his tapes or videos or podcasts, webcasts, as well as yours, of course. Uh, so there's another plug for you, Thanks. my friend. Thank you. Uh, because I, I do think he has some really basic concepts to help you have a happier, fuller life. Awesome. What would be like one last piece of advice that you could give anybody, um, whether young or old, that maybe a life lesson that, that you've learned uh, over the last uh, uh, 10, 20 years of growing Sun Capital? Uh, I think uh, the most important, one of the most important things is attitude. Uh, if you've got a positive attitude, if, if you literally, I mean, as simple as walking around smiling, uh, it brings people up. Uh, and, and smiles, I mean, it sounds corny, but smiles really are contagious. Uh, and doing good things, particularly when no one's watching, uh, is also rewarding as well. Uh, so just, it's, there's no reason not to be a good person. I mean, the way we started this conversation, you know, why am I, why do I always go out of my way to be good to people? And so, like, why would anyone not? Yeah. And uh, I, I, I do it for selfless reasons, but the reality is I get enormous dividends from it. So a lot of people, somebody told me like three months ago, they're like, you do it all for yourself. And I looked at them and they go, you do it for the feeling, the outcome you get in life. And I'm like, I do. I do it because I feel so fulfilled when I see a kid graduate high school or when I see, uh, you know, a kid not go back to jail or whatever, or a CEO, you know, build, build, like I just had a CEO over the last two years, we've been coaching their whole company and they went from two and a half million to five million income on one of the nonprofits in South Florida. So I love, like they doubled their income because before they weren't united, and we got them to really understand what they want to create. Right. So it's amazing that I get the value of fulfillment. It's not just a little bit of income, but it's it's amazing to be able to see results. So absolutely true. You guys check out Mark Leader. Check out Sun Capital. Uh, it's amazing what they do and, and how they build their company, their their teams, and uh, how Mark's been an awesome mentor. I appreciate your time today, and uh, thanks for everything. Of course. You guys have an amazing week. Check out Significance Breed Success. Thank you. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 